Good morning everyone, welcome to Real Life Church, it's great to have you with us. Um, if you haven't met me, my name's Stuart, I'm the leader of the church here and I want to offer you a very warm welcome. Uh, we're going to go to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. We've been <clears throat> studying the book of Ephesians for a number of months now, slowly going through it. Um, it's a fantastic letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church he had planted in the city of Ephesus that has great ref- relevance to us today um, as Christians and as, particularly as a new church starting. And we're beginning chapter 4 today and it's a significant moment in the letter because the, if you know anything about the, the letter to the Ephesians, there's six chapters in all, it's where it's divided up, And the first three chapters mainly cover doctrinal issues, theological issues, kind of broad, big picture um, brushstrokes of God's plan in uh, redeeming man and reconciling man to himself. So there's lots of high kind of themes and it's lots of things that we need to understand, believe, grasp of what God's plan is for creation, what God's plan is for the church. But the second half of the the letter, chapters 4 to 6, become instructional. So you move from the doctrinal to the instructional. You move uh, move from what God has done to what we must do by way of response. You've got mind-stretching theology in the first three chapters to -to down-to-earth practicalities in the last three chapters. So what we're now moving into is kind of what you've got to do as a result. But when we do this, we mustn't, you mustn't um, divorce it for what's gone on. That's the danger, is you suddenly get to all the practicalities, the things we must do, how we outwork this. And if you divorce it from what's gone um, previously, you get into legalism and just a list of rules, which is not what Christianity is. It's about a relationship with Jesus. And so we must hold intention everything that's come before. If you've missed any of the sermons, they're all on the website. You can go and have a listen, or you can just read through Ephesians for yourself in your own time, study it. But what's come before is laid the foundation for what's coming afterwards. So all that Paul has said about us, you know, he started in the beginning of chapter 1 about God's revelation, God's plan that has been revealed to mankind from eternity to eternity, that God wants to bring a people to himself, and that's always been his plan. And he, when he started, when he, before he created the world, this is what he had in mind, to bring people, to redeem them, to adopt them into his family, to give them forgiveness, and God's plan to bring Jew and Gentile together. Then we looked at... Um, God's reconciling work in chapter 2 between us and God, man to God, how God had dealt with that. We were enemies of God, we were lost in our sins and through Christ's death on the cross we can now be reconciled to God and have relationship with God. Then the second half of chapter 2 we see God reconciled man to himself. So you have vertical reconciliation and then horizontal reconciliation where we can be reconciled to one another. And he, he used the picture of the Jew and the Gentile which is um, historically the largest cultural ethnic divide in history. Uh, between Jew and non-Jew and and Paul is explaining that in Christ those barriers have been removed and we can come together regardless of ethnicity, background, culture, language, wherever we live, God has brought it all together in him and then in chapter 3 He said that this mystery is to be made known through the church. The church is the vehicle for which this news is going to be spread around the world, which gives us a huge responsibility. And Paul said his responsibility is to proclaim that to them and to anyone who will listen. And so we have the church forming, which shows visibly what God has done in, in mankind. And so that's all kind of come before, and now Paul is moving into, well, what does that mean for our life practically? I mean, that's all well and good, you know, these big themes. How does, how does that affect us day to day? So let's um, just read the first part of chapter 4. Um, I, this is Paul, 
I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we're just going to sort of focus on those first um, section. You can kind of break it into sort of three bits. The first part is a topic sentence, which basically the first sort of sentence there becomes the theme for the rest of the letter. That first is Paul's plea, Paul's charge to them. Then it talks about what we should display in our unity. And then at the end there it talks about ultimately um, unity is an act of God. Um, He's the one who kind of pins it all together. So we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at Paul's plea. We're going to look at uh, the call to work hard at unity. And then finally we're going to look at unity is based on God's work. Um, our unity as a people. Now, just a word on it before we kick in. When we talk about unity, people a lot like to talk about church unity. I've been in enough leadership circles and around church long enough to know about church unity. Um, and people talk about that. And I just want to say from my perspective, what I and teach the Bible, what I think church unity isn't, um, although they may have merit in and of themselves, unity, church unity is not all the churches in a local area getting together and doing a joint service. Church unity is not all the churches in a local area getting together and having an Easter parade. They may have merit in and of themselves, but that is not what church unity is about. When Paul talks about church unity, he is talking about relational unity between the members of the church. So if we want to deal with church unity, as the Bible is going to teach it to us today, it's ultimately a relational unity between the members of God's church. It's not a fact that just that we all try and get together and do something together. It's actually we have relational unity with one another. We can get on with one another. We can coexist with one another without falling out and the backbiting and all the mess that comes with that. That's primary what I think Paul is pushing us towards as we read this passage, that we need to be able to coexist with one another as relationships with men and women and children and so on. So the first thing... Paul's plea in this verse, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, recognise again, Paul is in prison as he writes this, um, but he recognises that it's God's sovereign hand over this, he is a prisoner in the Lord, there is a sovereign hand of God even in his imprisonment, and he recognises that even in that place, he is still burdened for the church, he's still writing to the church in Ephesus, and he has a plea for them, and that plea is... um, for unity, and he's saying, "Okay, I'm in prison, but I still I, there's something I want for you." And it's a very solemn appeal. Him, him referring to him being in prison kind of doesn't make it a light kind of. It's not a funny one. He's trying to pull. He's not trying to, you know, make them laugh. He's saying, "I'm actually in prison for my faith, but in that situation, I am I am giving you a charge, a plea." So there is a, a, sol- a solemnness to what he's about to share with them. And he says to them, I urge you. And that urge is, is begging, it's encouragement, it's exhortation, it's, it's pleading with someone to do something. Notice Paul isn't giving them an order. He's not like a general in an army that he says jump and the response is, well, how high? It's actually, I, I am begging you, I am asking you to do something. I can almost imagine him on his knees and, and saying, please be, 
unified. Please, he, please do what I'm going to ask you to do. So there's that sense of what he's saying. It's not a kind of, you know, would you mind passing me the milk? He is, he is begging them to do something. And it's interesting just thinking about this, I mulled it over in the week. I, I've come across this when we've dealt with people in church, in pastoral situations. Even when you're in a position of leadership, we don't actually have the authority to give people orders. You know, I would like that. Really, I would. <laughs> But we don't. I mean, we choose to be part of church. We choose to submit to leadership. We kind of volunteer to serve in, in roles. There isn't that place for us giving orders um, to one another. Even if you occupy a position of leadership, there is often a place of begging and pleading with people to do things and ask them to do things. And I've come across it many times in pastoral situations when you're dealing with people who are, who are involved in sinful practices and ideas and you're begging them stop doing that and you show them from the scriptures say this will lead you on a path to destruction this will damage you it will damage your relationship with God it will damage your relationship with the church it will have consequences on your family and your workplace and in those situations you find yourself begging and pleading don't do that it's destructive it is damaging and that, but that's all you've got. All you've got is begging and people have to respond in themselves. And Paul is in that same situation. I'm asking you, I'm begging you to do something, but he's not coming with a stick to say, you will do it or I'll hit you or even give them an order. But there is that sense of, please, 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 listen to me. Do what I'm asking you to do. And he says, he says he wants you to, I urge you to walk. Now that's an important one. The verb walk will come up again and again in the rest of Ephesians. He'll ask you to walk. And walk, if you're going to walk, it's an active thing that you have, to be particip- you have to participate in. If I asked all of you, if I begged you and pleaded you to walk out of the door, you'd all have to get up and go. There'd be no other way of doing it. You have to take responsibility. And when you're asked to walk, when Paul's talking about walk in that way, he's, he's putting the onus on them as individuals. You have to walk. You've got to get up and go. We've got a little boy, Levi, two years old now, and you see him, he runs around now. But when he was learning to walk, we encouraged him and we could see the signs. He he did the kind of bum in the air thing on all four for a long time as he was kind of trying to stand up. And then he kind of did what they call cruising, where he grabs onto something and moves along it like the settee or a chair. And then he would walk free and now he's running. But all the way through, we can encourage and say, well done, say, have a go, and sometimes we'd hold his hand and say, walk towards me, that kind of thing. But on every step he took, I couldn't make him take those steps. He had to do it. He had to take responsibility. And the fruits of his effort is the fact that he can now run uh, and jump, and, and he loves to do that kind of thing. And the same is for us. When Paul is saying, walk, he's putting the onus back on us as the church. You have to do this. No one else can do it for you. You've got to take responsibility for your actions. And then we come to the crux. In a manner worthy of the calling. Paul is saying, you have been called to something so incredible, so amazing, that he's taken three chapters to kind of outline it. Three chapters which are the kind of the inspired word of God that we could spend eternity plumbing the depths of what it actually means he says in light of all that in all what God has done in your life I want you to walk in a manner that is worthy of that that's what God's done with you respond to that something that's so magnificent has happened you are to walk in a way that kind of 
follows out what God has done in your life. And he has, God has acted in your life first. He chose you, he saved you, and we've had in the first part of chapter 1 the blessings of salvation, election, adoption, forgiveness, redemption, they're all there. It talks about a wonderful hope that we have, that we can look forward to in eternity, that we taste now by the Holy Spirit, because we have that as a deposit. He said, in spite of all that, um, that God is going to sum all things up in Christ, creation, that will be us as well. We will have new bodies. There will be a new creation. We've got to, that to look forward to, the hope. There is this new humanity that has been formed, a new household of God where Jew and Gentile can come together. Old divisions, old animosities can be sort of dealt with at the cross and we can come together in peace and harmony. We're part of God's um, household, therefore we have direct access to the Father by the Spirit. We now have a heavenly Father, creator of all things, that we can come boldly before and make requests. That's what we have. And we, uh, we're part of the church, which is God's plan A for humanity. We're part of this new people, this new redeemed people that we can enjoy and enjoy fellowship with one another. And we have gracious kind of responsibilities as a result of that, that he's given to us. He talks about good works that we can walk into. God has given us all that and he says, in light of that, walk in a way worthy. Live out you know, something worthy as a response. And the, the life of a Christian is the response to the acts of a gracious God. That's what we do. We are to respond to God. That's how, that's how life is. It's recognising what God has done in our life. He took the initiative. He started it. We didn't. And our life becomes an act of response and worship to what he's done. An act of gratitude. And if you look at things in life, you look at things like, and the Bible talks us um, to personal holiness, things that um, we should live and do. And that should be a response to the holy, a holy God who saved us. We respond to God is holy. He says, be holy like I am. We are actually holy in Christ, it says. We have, been brought, we have the righteousness of Christ. So God is holy. We've been made holy in Christ. He says, now just live like that. Flee from sin. Don't, get, don't dabble in it. Get away from it because that's not what you've been called to do. About the area of, kind of evangelism, sharing the good news. What has happened to you and me is absolutely mind-blowing. It's the best news on the planet. We respond to what God has his saving act in my life. So for me to tell someone else is merely a response. You know, if you won the lottery and you were like mega, you know, Facebook. I mean, that was a good idea, wasn't it? Who do we all think? I think I wish I'd had that idea. A hundred billion or what, you know, whatever it is, a billion dollars and that guy is now... I don't even want to think about it. If that happened to me, that's good news. I'd be letting you know. Seriously, I would be letting you know because something has happened to me that I would then respond and my life would be different. I would have an Aston Martin. I mean, it would just, it would just, it would just be the way it was. And so there would be a responding. The same with evangelism. Think about serving. We have the example of Christ as the ultimate servant. The king of creation comes and he humbly serves us. And so our serving is just a response to that. No job is too menial. Setting up chairs, putting out signs, serving the poor, you know, serving the needy. No job is too menial when you think the king of creation came and washed the feet of his disciples. Nothing is too menial when we look at it like that. Even giving our money. Financial giving, so, you know, honouring God with our money and, and giving to the church and, and Christian works around the world. Everything's God. Everything's God's anyway. And what's the ultimate example? He gave himself to die on a cross. And so uh, it's just a response. 
That's all it is. And so God, Paul is saying, live in a way that honours what you've been called to, what's happened in your life. Live in that manner. Okay, next section. Work hard at unity. Now, Paul is saying, okay, I want you to live um, in that, um, that way, live, live in a manner worthy of the calling you have been called. And he says, with all humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Okay, he, he took, he, there's four things there. There's the humility, the gentleness, the, the, the patience and the love that he, he kind of particularly hones in on. And these are characterised, if you kind of sum them up, and the ultimate example, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he displays each of these perfectly. And he is our kind of our model to look at. And Paul is saying, I want you to display them in, in, your, in your kind of dealings. You know, what does it look like to live in a manner worthy? Well, it starts by displaying these four characteristics. First one there is humility, which means um, lowliness of mind. It, it is to deal with how we think of ourselves and others, which in Greek thinking at the time was not a concept that was used. It's a, a distinctly uniquely Christian one in that one. The Greeks wouldn't have thought about it like that. They wouldn't have thought others of, um, better of themselves. Humility means not thinking of yourself less, but thinking less of yourself. I, I, I'll say that again because I get lost on that one. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That is humility. Uh, it's having a correct perspective of yourself in light of what we know now of God, how we say them. It's not thinking too highly of yourself, not thinking too low of yourself, but actually having a correct, balanced um, perspective of yourself before God. And he's the ultimate judge of who we are and what we're like. And um, the reality for us as humans is we're, we're, we get on with people most easily who show us the respect we think we deserve. If you think about the friends and the people you hang out with and the people you like, it's usually the people who treat you the way you think you deserve. And that is actually ultimately prideful. And, that is, and humility comes against that, that actually we, we, we don't, it's not about demanding our rights, it's not about getting what we want. Humility is having a correct perspective of ourselves before God, thinking of others better than ourselves. And it's no better... Um, summed up in the, the, the verse in Philippians uh, chapter 2. And it says, Though he was in the form of God... This is Jesus, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Humility is something that is giving up rights, what you think you deserve, to serve others. And Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of that. So there's that humility. There's gentleness. It's also going to be translated meekness. Now, it doesn't mean weakness. Um, but the whole idea of gentleness is, is the, it's, it's the not wanting to assert your personal rights. It's the absence of that in your life. Um, whether it's before man or before God. You don't want to say, this is what I deserve. This is what I am entitled to. And in our culture, that is a big thing. You know, you're entitled to compensation, they tell you on the TV. And, you know, it's, it's driven as, what is our right? What are we? And, and I'm not decrying them. Some of those are good things. But it's actually having a correct perspective of that. And it forms a natural pair with um, humility. Humility and, and gentleness, how we act. And Jesus even described himself as that in Matthew 11:29. He talks about himself being gentle and lowly in heart. Um, that's how he personally described himself. Yet he was still the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, um, the mighty warrior, but actually still he had the attitude. Um, and it's just an expression of how we should deal with one another in that gentleness and humility. And interestingly, it's particularly used in 
dealing with brothers and sisters in the Lord who've actually sinned and messed up, how we deal with them, recognising our own position as sinners before God uh, and imperfect as well. Then Paul goes on and talks about patience, bearing one another. Basically, this means long-suffering towards aggravating people. I've read that in the commentary and thought, oh dear, oh dear. Long-suffering towards aggravating people. The fact that you laugh means you've all been through it. The bearing one another kind of means a mutual tolerance. Um, we are fundamentally aware of everyone else's faults. We, we, what we aren't so good at is our own. But the thing is, they know ours and you know theirs. And so it's actually kind of bearing with one another. And the wonderful example of this, of course, is God throughout the Bible. If I'm reading through the Bible in a year and I I read through New Testament, Old Testament kind of parallel and the amount of times, particularly in the Old Testament that if I was God I would have wiped out the people of Israel so many times because they are just so annoying. They just do the dumbest things. They're blatantly disobedient. They go after other gods. They just, whatever God tells them to do, they do the opposite, almost just as an act of course. And you think, why did God not just destroy them? But actually, you know, he's... He's not that kind of God. He, he showed this, this, loving, this loving forbearance, they sometimes describe, this patience towards his people. Even Christ, when he came, were the twelve disciples some of the you know, densest men on the planet? You know, I would have been worse than them if I'd been in that situation. But we read the stories. And it's a, I think, for me, it proves to me the New Testament is um, accurate because they write stories about themselves. And actually, man was identical in that situation. When Peter tries to rebuke Jesus, that's a brilliant one. Jesus, you got that wrong. And what does he say to him? You know, get behind me, Satan. And you're like, oh no. But Jesus de- dealt with them. You know, you're all going to betray me and leave me and run away while I go to the cross and save you. But that's okay, because I've prayed for you, and he restores them at the end. And it's God is our example of that. And Jesus even told a parable about this just to ram it home in uh, Matthew 18. It's the parable of the unjust servant, which is, is, is really convicting. It's the story of um, a servant who went to his master and the servant owed a massive debt, you know, I think millions of pounds. And he begged for forgiveness from the master and to be released from the debt. And the master showed compassion and mercy on him and said, I will release you from that debt. The servant then went out and found one of his fellow servants who who owed him a very small amount of money. And his fellow servant said, "Uh, please release me from that debt. I cannot afford to pay. So at which point the the first servant basically said, no, I will throw you in prison and your family until you have paid the debt. He didn't show the, exhibit the same kind of patience that the, um, the master had shown with him. The master then finds out and has that servant, the first one, thrown in prison himself and says, you will pay the debt that you wouldn't let the other man off of. And there's just a reminder of actually how we bear with one another and we have patience uh, with one another. And then finally, Paul just talks about love, the ultimate Christian virtue in terms of loving compassion towards um, one another. Um, and it embraces everything that's gone before. Paul is interest, interesting. He just prayed in the previous section we looked at about being rooted and established in love. That was one of the keys of his prayer. Being rooted like a plant with deep roots and being established like a building with deep, strong foundations. That is what we are. Love is meant to be that one that kind of holds it all together. And so these are characteristics we are to display um, by the grace of God. And, it says, um, to, um, he, and then he follows on by saying eager. Now eager has a sense of urgency about it. There He says display these and then he says eagerly. And I don't know if you've ever been eager for anything. 
You know, if there's, um, you know, your birthday's coming up or Christmas is coming up or something, you get excited about something you're going to see, something you're going to do. And Paul is saying, eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit. And this um, is something that you have to strive and work towards. There is that element of active kind of participation, but it's going to be something that's not easy. If you've ever, anything that requires, anything that is worth having requires effort. A long Marriage requires effort, day after day, week after week, month after month, displaying those virtues to another human being who is as fallen and imperfect as you are, requires effort. If you ever try to um, do anything physical that um, requires effort, you know, running a marathon, becoming a top-class athlete in any field, the Olympics are coming up, and you, know, you see all these men and women who've trained for years to get to that uh, situation. Raising children is another one. It requires effort. You've got to go at it again and again and again. And he's only two, you know. I'm just saying. Um, and you know, to, to raise a child, you, you've got to keep going at these things um, time and time again. And so often we're tempted to give up. I don't know if you've ever, particularly in training physically, have you ever been tempted to give up? I'm actually training at the moment to get my black belt in karate. Hopefully by the end of this year, I will have it. And I can tell you, every time when I've got to go out to training on a Monday night, it's when I, I don't want to go. I just think, I can't be bothered. It's been a long day. I've had dinner. It's warm in here and it's cold and dark out there. And they're going to make me run and jump. And, just, it's going to, and I just don't want to go. And that's every, every week. It never fails. And I'm like, yeah, let's go and just get knackered and exhausted and have people half my age beat me up, you know, who are just better than I am at this. You know, it happens. So every time you've got to... Oh, and it's, it's that sense. Let's be eager. Let's strive. Let's put our focus towards it. And Paul says, maintain the unity of the Spirit. So ultimately this is a work of God and it's something God has done in it. But yet we are told to maintain it. So there's, there's, there's two elements. We'll come on to the God element in just a moment. But he's saying you have got to maintain this. He's giving a charge to the people. You maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now what is that about? Well, if we look through what Paul has talked about in the letter, he talks about Christ reconciling all things to himself. He talks about God reconciling man to himself at chapter 2. Then he talks about Jew and Gentile coming together and that being displayed in the church in chapter 3. God's masterpiece was the church. And he says, well, God has already done all that himself. What are we to do? Well, to maintain it is to show visibly what God has done kind of spiritually in pulling us together. So there is a visible expression of what God has already done, which means that when people see God's people together and they see the church, do they visibly see that unity which God has put in place? And that is a sobering thing, that if people come among the church, what do they think about? What do they see? Do they see factions and cliques and division and splits and, and backbiting and gossip? Or do they see an expression of what God has brought together they actually see that worked out, that there is, wow, you have genuine love and affection for people and people from different ages and backgrounds and cultures and languages come together and form something wonderful and they show that what God has already done in our lives. And Paul is saying you need to work at the visible 
outworking of what God has already done in your life. And that requires effort and striving afterwards. And he talks about the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, that the characteristic of the relationship is a peace and harmony. Now, that doesn't mean you know, peace and we all kind of sit around mm, and, you know, and all that sort of thing, go hippie. There is a, it should be an ongoing attitude that, that there aren't factions and cliques. And when things do go wrong, which they inevitably do, um, we are quick to deal with them and to maintain that bond of peace um, as much as we can. And it, it should speak about something, our diversity, but with unity should speak of something if people come in and see it amongst us. Um, and for me, this was highlighted so clearly when, um, when I kind of got into church and stuff, was when I joined a small group. Okay, we have small groups here, we call them life groups, uh, which is a small group of men and women that meet midweek, midweek and do life together as part of the big whole. And I remember the first small group that Mel and I led when we kind of just got married, so it was a, a good time ago, and a more diverse, weird, strange, bizarre bunch of men and women I could not imagine, and Mel and I were in charge. Okay, and it was sort of the first group we led, and they were... They were, we had weirdos like you wouldn't believe in our group. And, and in that, because when you've got such strange people coming together from so many different backgrounds and you kind of like, we're all Christians, so we've all got to kind of get together and we have to maintain this bond of peace. You know, oh dear. We had, um, we had people, we had one lady in our group, God bless her, she was a single lady, she was kind of in her late 30s. She recently got saved and it was fantastic, but she couldn't stand, stand for anything that bordered on pretension or kind of weirdness or you know, super spirituality. And she would just say it. She would say, well, that's stupid, why are you doing that? In the middle of the group. And everyone's like, oh, no. you know, I'm thinking, how do we deal with this? And she would have that. We had people who would sing at the top of their lungs and they couldn't sing. They just couldn't. And they loved the Lord Jesus and we kind of loved them, and, and they would sing really loud. So whenever we had any kind of let's worship uh, and stuff, uh, they would just, they would go for it. And you admired their gusto, but you just thought, just turn it down. And I'm one of those people, I can't sing very well, but I, I, I temper my volume, sensitive to other men and women around. They did not do it. We had one guy um, who thought he was God's gift to music, and he wasn't that good a musician, so he wanted to play, and he didn't play very well. Um, we had other people who just didn't get on with other people in the group and they said it. We had one uh, young girl who, who was painfully shy and so she never really spoke and when she did it was in a whisper and so it was kind of, you're always conscious of, sorry, what's that? And then, can you, do you? And then of course when you asked her to kind of repeat it, of course she felt, and, it went, and you had all this going on and of course Mel and I led it and we didn't got a clue what we were doing and I, and I get, I, I'm an extreme introvert. If you've ever done Mars-Briggs test, I, my my pan out comes out on the introvert-extrovert scale as extreme introvert. I'm literally on the end of the line, which means that the difference between an introvert and an extrovert is where you get your energy from. And I get my energy from being alone. That's an extrovert. And an introvert gets their, their energy... Sorry, the extrovert gets energy from people. So um, just so you know, my wife's the extreme extrovert. So we do really well together. So I'm the extreme introvert. So when you've led a group of people for an evening and it's been quite fractious, by the end of the evening, I'm thinking, just leave my house. I need some space. Just get away from me. And so I, would, I was leading the group and I would go up, I would literally, you know, kind of got to ten past ten, we'd sort of finish and people are hanging around. I'd just leave. I've got to get up early for work tomorrow. I'm exhausted. I'd just go upstairs and I'd just get ready for bed and they'll come up and find me thinking, I've had enough of those people. I'm tired. I've got to get up for work tomorrow. The alarm's going to go in like about seven hours. 
get them out of my house. And I was the leader, and I was meant to be displaying this kind of thing. And I just, we've all been through it. And you all, the funny thing is, you're all thinking of people now. You're like, oh yeah, yeah. You're probably thinking about people in this room as well. That's the really funny thing. Yeah, I know they're like that all the time, aren't they? But that's just that's reality. But we are called to strive within that context to maintain unity, to maintain that bond of peace. And the fascinating thing, that group of total weirdos. We had non-Christian friends. One of them was a a teacher I worked with, her and her fiancé. We got to know them socially because they lived in the town um, at the time. And they would often come and they would hang out and we'd do kind of, you know, barbecues on bank holidays. And we'd just hang out. And she would always say to us when she came, she said, I am stunned that you, your group, your, your friendship circle is so wide and diverse. I can't believe you all, you all kind of get on and hang out together. I mean, little did she know. But, but there was something about what she saw in us that, that she, she kept commenting on. And, and, and the funniest thing is, they were even insensitive to her in front of her. And I'm just like, you invite your friend, and then the crazy interest on stupid. Oh, I just, but, but she would comment. She, she saw something. So there was something of a work of God going on, even in that, that group of... Um, that strange group who was there. So kind of application of this, I just want to just, make, just hit one thing. Dealing with conflict, when you get two imperfect people together, they will fall out at some time. And the Bible's got some pretty clear things to say on how you deal with this. There's two kind of key verses. One's in Matthew 18:15, the other one, uh, Matthew 5:23, and the few after it. And basically it boils down to this. And if we as a church could grasp this, we will solve so many issues so quickly that we won't have to they won't have to blow up and you know, suck in people's time and energy. The first one, Matthew 18, basically sum it up. It says, if you have a problem with someone, you talk to them. You don't talk to anyone else. That's gossip. You talk to them. So if someone offends you by something they say, something they do, you go and talk to them about it. If Jonathan's sitting here, if he says something to me that I think was a bit rude about our turn, my responsibility before God and before him is to talk to him, to say, could I just have a quick word? And I approach him humility and gentleness like we've talked about in love and say, situation X, Y, and Z, this happened, I felt like this. So my call is to talk to that individual. That's, that's my only responsibility, nothing else. You don't talk to your spouse, you don't talk to your small group leader, you don't talk to your friend about it, you don't find someone else who doesn't like Jonathan and talk to them about it so we can both say how much we dislike Jonathan because he's just mean to us. You talk to them and you deal with them and you work it out with them. Now that passage goes on to say if that doesn't work you can get others involved to help mediate but ultimately it's between two people and you go and talk to them. The other verse in Matthew 20. uh, Matthew 5, basically what that says is if you think someone has a problem with you, so let's say Jonathan, I think Jonathan's got a problem with me. Some things he's doing, I think he's got issues with me. What's my responsibility? To talk to him. So whether you have a problem with someone or you might think they have a problem with you, the responsibility is simple. You have to talk to them. That's it. And so for us, we boil it down, what's your responsibility? Talk to them. That's all it is. You could sum it up in that word. Three words. Talk to them. That's all you have to do. There's not, hi, what do I need to do to resolve conflict? Talk to them. So if, you think, if, they, if they've done something to you that you need to talk, to, you know, talk about, you need to go to them. If you think they've, you know, they've got an issue with you over something's happened, you've got to go and talk to them. And in my experience, it's amazing what, 
what is miscommunicated, what is not, you know, you've taken something to mean something and they didn't mean that in the first place. And a simple conversation clarifies Ecclesia, I didn't mean that, I'm sorry if you felt that. You know, I, I, what I meant was this, I'm sorry if it came across like that. And you can clear it up. And if we as a church do that, will be just fine in the future because a bunch of imperfect people together will rub each other up the wrong way so much. And if we just do that simple thing, we will be just fine. Okay? And it says in Hebrews that we are to make every effort to live in peace as much as it depends on us. And so we are to make the effort to go and deal with um, the situation. All right, move on. Last one. Uh, Unity is based on God's uh, work. So as Paul talks about what we're to do, the effort that we're to make, um, things that we're to move on to. Um, he actually reminds us that ultimately underpinning all this is actually God. God brings this unity. God's the one. We're just to maintain it and show it. But God brings it. And he, he lists some things there um, using the word one. Uh, he talks about one is thing, just reminding us that our foundation, there's only one foundation. And if you read the kind of the list, it, it basically contains the Trinity there, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and some things connected uh, with that. And that's a, a, it's fascinating that Paul uses that because the Trinity, God himself, is our ultimate example of unity. Because we have one God, but he is three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, each person fully God, yet they they coexist eternally um, as a community within the Godhead, perfectly coexisting and and, um, working with one another, honouring one another, loving one another, even submission is all in there. But actually, that is our example. And Paul talks there, he says, okay, one, he starts with, uh, there is one body, that's referring to the church, Believers of all time and all places are connected into one body alone. All Christians, um, and even the believers from the non-Testament before that word, I'm sorry, the Old Testament before that word was even used, all believers from all time, they are one body. There is only one church universal. We express it in many different kind of local congregations, but there is only one church, and that's what we're a part of. And one spirit, reference there um, to the Holy Spirit who unifies all believers. The same Holy Spirit dwells in all believers, whether you're young or old, or you come from this country or any other country, in any time you live, it's the same spirit that dwells in us and gives us access to our Father, and he brings us all together. So it's the same spirit, one body, one spirit. Uh, one uh, hope, just you're called to one hope, and the hope being from what Paul talks about, he talks about um, mankind having originally no hope, we were enemies of God, we were, we were set opposed to God, there was no hope for God, but God has saved us, he's given us a hope, brought us into Christ, we have something to look forward to, um, a future that's secure, but actually now we have the spirit dwelling in us, giving us kind of assurance of that hope. We haven't received it in its fullness, but we are assured of it because of the one spirit. One body, one spirit, one hope that we can have now about the future because of the spirit dwelling in us. And he's, he's reminding them, actually saying, come on, you're, a, you're a, you know, an eclectic group of pardoned rebels, but you've got one spirit and one hope that you're all heading towards um, in the future. Then it talks... Um, about uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The Lord is um, obviously a reference to Jesus Christ. I think there's about, so far in Ephesians, there's been about 20 references um, to Christ as Lord. He's the one from whom all, all spiritual blessings come, the one that we are brought into in faith, from whom all creation kind of was created through and moving back to, to be reconciled. Paul himself is a prisoner in the Lord. He said, he's, the Lord is the one who sovereignly rules over all creation. 
and he's the head of the church, this one body. And so there is only one Lord over all things and his name is Jesus. And he's saying there is one Lord and you all follow him. And then that connects quickly with the next two, one faith. Who do we have faith in? We have faith in Christ. Our faith and trust is in Christ, atoning death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven and his return one day in the future. So our faith is based on that one Lord. There's only one faith by which man will be saved. All of us here, we've only put our faith in Christ. Whether you've been a Christian for years or a Christian for days, it's one faith in Jesus Christ. My faith is not better than yours. We have the same faith. Um, all in Christ our Lord. One body of belief, one body of teachings, which Paul has outlined here at the beginning of Ephesians. And then there was one baptism. Faith and baptism, it's interesting that Paul has put them together because that's how they come together. You have faith, you believe in Christ, you say, this is my response, I respond to Jesus, I accept his death um, in my place for my sins, and the response of the New Testament is that you be baptised. That's, that's what happens. You put your faith and trust in Jesus, and then you, as, as a new believer, you demonstrate that faith through the waters of baptism. You get baptised, you get wet before God, and it, we are actually, it links back to the Lord because we are baptised into Christ. The picture of baptism is you go down into the grave in the water, you don't say they're too long or it really would be a grave, you come back out of the water, dead quick, and that is rising to new life in him. That is the image of baptism, and as believers we are called to have faith and then get baptised. That's your kind of initiation into the Christian faith. Um, be baptised as a believer. And then... Paul goes on to say there is uh, one God and Father of all over all things. He is the one who is transcendent over everything. This is a reference to God the Father. So we've had Spirit, we've had Jesus, we've had God the Father. He is sovereign over all things. So this is what we have um, kind of come together um, and been, uh, been brought into, um, this, this wonderful act of God. And Paul is reminding them that what you ultimately have in God, what that church does, what we do as a church, is a unity that is actually indestructible. If you are saved and you have been born again by the Spirit and you are a believer in Christ, you, you have a connection with other believers that is indestructible and cannot be broken. You are united for all time with them and with the Lord and you will be with them forever. Which when you think about it, you think, that's not so good. But that's okay because they become perfect, as do you. So being with them forever is all right because we have glorified bodies and we will be made new um, in Christ. So that's a wonderful thing to look forward to. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you've been in a situation with a bunch of strangers. It might happen in a work situation. or I've been in situations where you kind of go in and you, just, you don't know anyone in the room and you've got to be there for a meeting or a course or a some situation like that. And you meet someone and there's something about them that you know without a shadow of a doubt they're a believer. You don't know how you know, you just know. And it's happened to me on numerous occasions. And I, you look at someone and you think, you are a Christian. I don't know how I know, I just know. You haven't got a WWJD band on. There is no Bible under your arm. You're not, you know, it's crazy. You just, you just look normal. But you are a believer. And sure enough, the conversation, the dialogue begins. And you find out, that's right, you're a believer. The reason you're new is because you are united and connected with them in a way that kind of we can't even grasp because the power of God has worked in your life and their life and the same spirit in you is the same spirit in them. The same faith that you have is the same faith they have. And we're going to the same place. And that's the image um, of this, of the unity that we share as a people. It's there 
God has put it in place. And we can't kind of get rid of that. That is something that God has done. But we are called to kind of maintain that and work of that. And kind of to finish, the, the image that would be that would be an image of a family. Imagine a family where you have a mum and dad and some children and over the years they, uh, divisions occur and factions occur and they, the mum and dad split up and the children live home and they kind of move to different parts of the country, even to foreign countries. The, re- the, the, the reality is no matter where they go or whether they ever talk to them, they're still family. There's still a connection of mother to child and father to child and even um, husband and wife, with the, they, they created those children. And it's the same with us as a church. Wherever we go, we are still connected with people because of what Christ has done. And that same, if we take that image, what's our call, if we look at this, is to maintain unity, is to try and bring reconciliation. If there's been division, it's to bring reconciliation, to bring people back to themselves. That's what we're to work at. That's how we're to show the unity we have in Christ visibly to one another and those around us is by working at reconciliation. Working at reconciliation. Okay, three bits of homework and we will stop. Um, I would like you to um, consider some things. The first one, I would like you to consider um, is there anybody that you need to, um, that you have an issue with that you haven't dealt with? And you'll know if there is because you're thinking of it now. The Holy Spirit does that. And is there something that you know, I need to go and talk to them, I need to just talk to them gently on the side, just the two of us, and with humility and gentleness, outline what I felt and let them respond and have a dialogue about it. Is there something you need to deal with? Because the reality is, if you don't deal with it, it will just grow like a weed or a worse image, a cancer. It just grows and it will affect you and it will affect them and it will affect those around you. And I just say, consider if there's anything, and you'll know if there is, go and talk to them. Um, I also want you to consider um, baptism. If you know you haven't been baptised, me talking about this, and you know you need to, um, I want to talk to you about that. And actually, as a believer, getting baptised, because that is Christ's kind of call, command to us, and I stand here and urge you and plead with you and beg you to say, that is what Jesus has asked you to do, please consider it. We are going to have a baptism this term. We've got one person lined up. Um, We're happy to do more. So it will be our first baptisms. Um, Practically, I'm not sure how that's going to work, but we will do it and they will get wet um, and it will be wonderful. So that that is coming for us as a church. Second, um, third thing, sorry, is um, I want to consider, are you walking in humility, gentleness, patience and love? Are you walking in that? Paul talks about the unity of the Spirit and um, in Galatians it talks about the fruit of the Spirit and on things we display being full of the Spirit. And I want to just challenge you, are you daily as a believer asking God to fill you with his Spirit? Next week Mel's going to do part two of the life in the Spirit thing. We did it last week. Um, uh, I put the, by the way, there was something went wrong with the upload of the, the, the download of the sermon on the website. It was only seven minutes. I've changed it. It's now full length on there if you want to have a listen to that. But next week, Mel's going to be doing part two and we're going to be praying for people who feel the Spirit if you've never been filled and moving and all that stuff. So I want to just challenge you. Be someone who regularly prays, ask God to be filled with the Spirit. I mean, it's that simple. Jesus, fill me with your Spirit. Holy Spirit, come and fill me. You know, you can use one of them. You know, they're, they're not but be that person who's filled with the Spirit so you display those things. Um, We're going to stop there and I'm going to hand over to Matt.
Yes, please, would you tell them? Yeah, we've got a small room and lots of children. So this could get really entertaining, but that's fine. Um, Matt's going to, Phil, come and get ready uh, to lead us. We're going to worship Jesus together.